The title of this morning's message is Deliverance Will Arise. Will you? <laughs> Part of this title, Deliverance Will Arise, comes from the Old Testament book of Esther. This is probably one of the most famous lines in the Old Testament. It's where Esther's cousin Mordecai says to her as queen in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Who knows whether you have attained royal status for such a time as this? Basically, Mordecai is saying deliverance is going to arise, but will you arise and participate in it? Will you facilitate it for others? Because there is deliverance from your enemies. So this morning we're going to look at the subject of deliverance within the context of the book of Esther and within the context of the New Covenant. What exactly is biblical deliverance? Does having a royal status actually facilitate deliverance in our lives? And do we, like Esther, have to arise and do something in order to participate in this deliverance? When I was seeking the Lord about what to minister on this week, I was asking the Lord if he wanted me to do something seasonal. Easter is going to soon be upon us, and for many, this is the season of Lent. Now, most Protestants have no idea what Lent is. <laughs> I used to be a Catholic, however. <laughs> for Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, and a few other denominations, Lent is a season of self-preparation and self-discipline that leads to a greater anticipation of celebrating Easter. So every year when Lent rolls around, since I was Catholic for quite a long time, I choose to participate in keeping Lent. In other words, I make a commitment to the Lord during the six weeks prior because Easter is so special. Resurrection Day is like no other day. And it's like with Christmas. You have to work hard to make Christmas about Jesus. <laughs> and, and it's getting that way about Easter, too. You have to work hard at making Easter about Jesus and not bunnies and chocolate. And so for me, that's what I choose to do. When uh, people participate in Lent and their consecration to the Lord, they usually give something up. And usually it's something that we know is not good for us anyway, you know, like sugar, pizza, <laughs> too much TV, alcohol, smoking, and of course the very famous fasting meat on Fridays. So that's not one of mine, but, <laughs> but people usually give up something as a token of devotion to the Lord. And it's just a private commitment between them and the Lord. The purpose of this kind of fasting is to help an individual practice self-denial. I don't really like the term self-denial. I like the term flesh denial. Because <laughs> that's really the point, is telling your flesh no. And getting good at telling your flesh no. <laughs> and part of telling your flesh no, you have to focus on your relationship with Christ. So this then leads and makes anticipation of Easter special. You're looking forward to the day of celebration. That's really the focus of fasting in the New Testament, to give more time and more thought to God, your relationship with him and his word. 
So the purpose of fasting under the old covenant, however, was very different, which we will see in the story of Esther. Esther's fasting is for God's favor and protection through her husband, the king. This past week, the Jews all over the world celebrated the Feast of Purim, which celebrates both Queen Esther and the great deliverance of the Jewish people from their adversaries. The Feast of Purim started on sundown Wednesday, the 28th, and finished on Friday at sundown on March 2nd. The Feast of Purim is really weird. <laughs> Just so you know, the way they celebrate it is kind of weird. <laughs> it is not one of the prescribed feasts that God instituted. That's why we don't celebrate the Feast of Purim. It's not something God decided was necessary. <laughs> it was instituted by Mordecai, the Queen Esther's cousin. Now, the Feast of Purim was instituted because of the miraculous deliverance from their enemies. Mordecai, not God, decided that there should be a feast annually to express thanksgiving and frivolity of this great triumph. In other words, they were celebrating themselves. <laughs> really wasn't so much about celebrating how good God was, more like, yay, we did it. <laughs> so the Feast of Purim nowadays is actually compared to Mardi Gras. It might give you an idea of how they celebrate, which is also called Fat Tuesday. Fat Tuesday is the day before the first day of Lent, which is called Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday begins the 40 days of self-denial or flesh denial and prayer. So supposedly, Fat Tuesday started with a way of using up all the yummy things that you're going to give up. <laughs> eating all the pizza, eating all the pie, eating all the sugar, eating everything. Then you practice self-denial. <laughs> So that's how it sort of got started. And of course, it has erupted into something that has absolutely nothing to do with honoring God or Easter. <laughs> but according to Jewish writings, the Feast of Purim is to be celebrated riotously with costumes and an abundance of alcohol and noisemakers and an overabundance of food. And part of the admonition of Purim is to drink to the point that you can't tell the difference between evil Haman and righteous Mordecai. Now, does that sound like something God would ask you to do? <laughs> no. <laughs> but this is actually in the Jewish writings. So, of course, rabbis traditionally do not encourage that kind of behavior, but they do do the, the costumes, sort of like Halloween, with costumes and parties and... That's how they celebrate, and it goes for the two whole days. Now, why would they want to participate in such an excessive celebration? I think the concept was supposed to be because of the utterly miraculous nature of their deliverance from their enemies. Still, to this day, the Jews celebrate their national deliverance from the hand of one of the most hated enemies of all time in Jewish history, Haman the Agagite. Haman is the evil character in the story of Esther. The story of Esther actually takes place in Persia. She and her cousin Mordecai are obviously descendants of those who were told by God to not fight against Nebuchadnezzar and to let themselves be taken to Babylon. The Jews were put into Babylon at that time, sort of as a God-devised time out 
<laughs> Most of the Jews had fallen completely away from the Lord and were practicing paganism, just like everybody else around them. So God told them through the prophet Jeremiah that it was their lack of keeping relationship and lack of keeping covenant that led him to putting them in this time out. It was a punishment, yes, because they had an authority over them. They were no longer their own rulers. But it was also divine protection because there were lots of other kings who would also want to kill them. <laughs> so God said, yes, this is a timeout. But yes, this is divine protection as well. And so during that time, he told them, even in the far land, even if you're not where you're supposed to be in Jerusalem, if you will seek me with all of your heart, you will find me, even without a temple. That was phenomenal. Even without a temple. He said, if you search for me, I will be found. You will not be able to miss me if you search for me. He promised that the whole nation of Israel would come back to Jerusalem about 70 years later. So the story of Esther takes place after the 70 years is already up. The first wave of Jews have already gone back to Jerusalem. On the timeline, if you took Esther and inserted it into the book of Ezra, between chapter 6 and 7, that's where it takes place. They've begun building the temple. They're having to fight, stand their ground, and take what belongs to them back again. And that's where Esther belongs. The problem is, why are Mordecai and Esther still in Persia? <laughs> why are they not where God said they're supposed to be? <laughs> hmm. Esther is the primary character of this story. She is a beautiful Jewish girl who is presumably chosen against her will to be a beauty pageant contestant, whereby the winner wins the crown of Persia. And she just so happens to win. <laughs> then she's crowned queen of Persia without anybody knowing she's a Jew. Why would nobody know she's a Jew? Was she keeping Sabbath? Was she keeping kosher? Was there any exterior evidence that she had a relation with the one true and living God? It doesn't appear so. <laughs> Nobody knew she was a Jew. So, obviously she and Mordecai weren't overly religious or devout. And we see no mention of keeping any kind of Jewish law, not even the Sabbath, which was a big deal for the Lord. Which may be why God's name is not used in the book of Esther at all. His name is not even named once, which is odd. Some scholars say, well, maybe it was because it was written in Persia, that it wasn't allowed. Maybe. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> the truth is, the Jews weren't supposed to still be in a foreign land. They were supposed to come home. They were released by King Cyrus to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. But only about 50,000 people went. The Jews really had become accustomed to where they were at. Life was good. <laughs> well, they had businesses and family, and who wants to get uprooted and start all over? And we can find God here. That's all good for us. We'll just stay here. However, <laughs> they were still where they weren't supposed to be. Now, could being where you're not supposed to be cause unnecessary problems in your life, whereby you might need to be delivered. 
Well, according to this story, yes, most definitely. <laughs> the next character in our story is the evil Haman. He is the king's right-hand man who just happens to hate Mordecai because Mordecai continually refuses to bow to him in honor. This would have been appropriate to bow. It was not like he was asking him to bow on his knees like in worship. It would have been appropriate for a Jew to bow in honor to a civil authority. However, Mordecai refused. And it doesn't tell us why he refused. Scholars have come up with some pretty creative ideas as to why he might have not honored this man. However, the story itself doesn't tell us. So, when Mordecai continuously refuses to give honor to him, the evil Haman gets his undies all in a bundle <laughs> and decides Mordecai has got to go. And not just Mordecai, every Jew. See, they knew Jew Mordecai was a Jew. So the whole problem that develops, this hatred for Mordecai and the Jews, all stems from Mordecai refusing to bow and give honor to the civil authorities. Could not submitting to the governing authorities get you into a situation whereby you might need to be delivered? <laughs> Most definitely. <laughs> so, thanks to Mordecai's insubordination, now every Jew in the kingdom needs to be delivered. Yes, you can't take one out of the other. <laughs> and so, the evil Haman, he decides to make a deal with the king to basically buy the right to exterminate all of the Jews. And when he does this, he casts lots to determine when would be the best day that they should die. <laughs> Casting lots was similar to throwing dice or drawing straws. And it was done to really to determine their God's will. So he's, this throwing lots isn't just a game of chance. It was a way to discern what his God wanted him to do. So the dice were called pure or pur. <laughs> However you want to say it, P-U-R. <laughs> and so he cast lots, and he decided what day they would all die. So Haman sends out news to all of Persia and tells all of the Persians, on this particular day, you can kill and plunder all of your neighboring Jews. Take all their stuff for yourself. And, oh, by the way, you're not allowed to fight back. It was pretty devastating. Basically, he sent out a death sentence to all the Jews in the kingdom. But unbeknownst to Haman, the queen just so happens <laughs> to also be a Jew. And this is where Mordecai, Esther's cousin, begins to see the unseen hand of God. And he comes to Esther and says this very famous line, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Who knows whether you have attained royal status for such a time as this. So basically, Mordecai says, deliverance belongs to us. We're the Jews. Deliverance will arise. But are you going to rise up and take it? Are you going to let it pass you by? It's up to you. Oh, but just so you remember, you are royalty. I love that he appeals to her new identity as queen. <laughs> you see, queens are not powerless. Even though they're limited in their royal prerogatives, they're not powerless because they have the power of persuasion. 
And in this case, she's the only one who has even the remotest possibility of being able to get to the heart and the ear of the king. And so Esther replies to Mordecai in verse 16, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Shushan and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. My maids and I will fast in the same way. Afterwards, I will go in to the king, even though it is not according to the law. So if I perish, I perish. It was against the law for anyone to show up and visit the king uninvited, including the queen. So it was a life and death sort of situation. First off, we don't fast like this. <laughs> don't try this. <laughs> this was Esther's idea. You can tell it's a very fleshly kind of idea. It was not God's idea. God never prescribed this kind of fasting. The closest thing to it is the fast on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where a healthy Jew would fast for 25 hours food and water. If you were unhealthy, it was not required of you. Okay? So there was one fast day a year prescribed by God. One. God never asked anyone to make this kind of fast. On the Day of Atonement, though, they fast in order to show their humility, their sorrow for sin, and repentance, a turning from sin and towards God. Esther obviously felt like she had to do something drastic in order to get God to do something drastic. This is pagan thinking. I do, so God will do. That's not New Covenant thinking. That's not really even Old Covenant thinking. <laughs> That's really pagan thinking. Even today, you'll find Christians wanting to fast to get stuff from God. <laughs> if I fast for four days, will he pay my rent? doesn't work that way. God is not moved by your fasting. We are moved by our fasting. Fasting for believers doesn't move God, it moves us. Fasting, of course, mixed with seeking God through his word and prayer, can make a huge difference in our lives. But it's not because we've earned God's favor through self-denial, prayer, and Bible reading. It's not a brownie point system. He loves us and has already provided for us. Now, she was asking for protection. Protection already belongs to a new covenant believer. We already have everything that we need in our relationship with Christ. God has already given us everything we need for life and godliness through Jesus. Even though we have access, it's not automatic. Have you noticed that God doesn't rain money down when you have a need? And he doesn't just let you go out and, into, and do your own thing, follow after the flesh without any consequences. It doesn't work that way. We have to appropriate by faith. We have to receive what belongs to us. We have to take it. God's grace is absolutely free, but it's not automatic. We have to use our faith. And sometimes, natural unbelief clogs up our faith pipes. Natural unbelief is caused by living according to our senses, our five senses, and not according to the Spirit. We know up here, we know the truth. <laughs> we are convinced in our head. <laughs> this belongs to me, whether it's healing, protection, provision, whatever it is, we know it belongs to us. But we don't see it in our hand. Because we have the kingdom within us. Seek ye first the kingdom and everything else will be added to you. Okay, how do I pull out what's inside of my kingdom? Well, what happens is we're so used to living according to the flesh, according to what we see and think and hear, 
and feel that we get what's called natural unbelief. That's what Andrew Womack calls it. It's a perfect example because we tend to be fleshly, outwardly dominant. And it takes effort to be spirit Christ dominant in order to start pulling out all the good things that are in the kingdom for us. It's being carnally minded instead of spiritually minded. So fasting can help us clean out our spiritual ears, which allows us to hear the Lord more clearly, which causes us to have our faith activated. So like with Esther, fasting can be a good thing. So in the story, Esther completes her fast, and then she goes to the king uninvited, which she knows carries the possibility of death. But she is the queen. He did pick her out of all the young ladies in the kingdom. <laughs> and the king is obviously quite taken with her. And so he extends his scepter to her, thereby accepting her into his presence and negating the penalty of death. She then invites the king and Haman to a banquet, where it appears she may have chickened out. <laughs> the purpose of the banquet is to ask for mercy for her and her people, but she doesn't do it the first time around. After the banquet, Haman thinks this is great because only he and the king are the only two guests of honor at this banquet. So they had this wonderful banquet. She doesn't ask. She says, come tomorrow, then I'll tell you what I want. And so Haman leaves thinking all is well, and he runs into that darn Mordecai who refuses to bow to him, and he gets super, super angry. <laughs> and so he decides to have a gallows built, because tomorrow he's going to ask the king if he can kill Mordecai on it. So just so happens that that very night, the king just so happens to have a sleepless night. And he calls for the royal records to be read to him. And it comes to his attention that Mordecai, Esther's cousin, has never been rewarded for thwarting an attack on the king. It's been five years. He's never been recognized. <laughs> so the next day, Haman shows up. And to Haman's chagrin, the king says, this is what I want you to do to reward him. Dress him in royal attire, put him on one of my royal steeds, and parade him all around town and declare that this is how uh, the king honors those he chooses to honor. Haman has to <laughs> declare honor over Mordecai all day long. <laughs> what is he going to do with that gallows he had built? <laughs> So now he's doubly humiliated, doubly infuriated, <laughs> but he is going to the banquet. So he goes to the banquet that night. Esther has the banquet for the king and for Haman, and it's there that she finally reveals her true nationality, and she exposes Haman as an enemy to the king and to herself, and she requests that the lives of her and her people be spared. Now. In the story, the king is actually drunk, which was very common. <laughs> and now he's furious. <laughs> and he gets up and he leaves the room, which really doesn't make sense to me, but okay. As he leaves, Haman realizes this looks really bad. This looks really bad. So he decides to beg for his life, and he falls on the queen, uh, begging for mercy. And the drunken king comes back in. 
And the, what are you doing to my wife? What are you out of your mind? <laughs> he apprehend him. <laughs> so they apprehend him. And just so happens, one of the attendants, the king's attendant, says he had a gallows built to hang Mordecai on. So it looks like he's even more of an enemy of the king than he thought. So there's no way of getting out of it now. Now he looks really, really guilty. And he is hung on his own gallows. The king's wrath is appeased. And Esther and Mordecai are given the authority to write a new edict saying that the Jews can fight back and that the king's soldiers are going to be both bringing the edict and aiding the Jews in their defense because now the Jews have the king's favor. So the fateful day finally arrives. The Jews are completely victorious over all of their enemies. And Mordecai institutes this great feast of celebration called the Feast of Purim and dictates that it should be celebrated from generation to generation. And it still is. So what can we take away from the story of Esther and their great deliverance of the Jews from their adversary, Haman? Well, let's start with the meaning of the word deliverance. In both the Old and the New Testament, the word deliverance simply means rescue. And it carries the connotation of being snatched up and out. <laughs> Years ago, I read in the lexicon that the picture that this word tries to paint is that there is a wildly rushing river and there's a person in it. And the wildly rushing river is taking this person against their will and they're going to their demise. The deliverer reaches in and snatches them up and out. That's deliverance. That's rescue. The Webster's 1828 dictionary, when you look at the word rescue, says this, to free or deliver from any confinement, violence, danger, or evil, to liberate from actual restraint, or to remove or withdraw from a state of exposure to evil. So basically, it is just rescue from evil. <laughs> violence, danger, evil, all in one package. It's deliverance from all of that. In Mordecai's statement, he says to Esther that deliverance will arise for the Jews. But if she's going to experience her deliverance, she's going to have to participate bringing it into manifestation. I like that because that is the way it is for us sometimes. Sometimes Christians get the magic wand mentality, you know? <laughs> we get the Naaman mentality. Wave your hand over my spot, Jesus, and make it go away. <laughs> we get frustrated because we think we're trying to get God to move. And in the New Covenant, he's already moved. It's us we have to move. Mordecai knew that deliverance belonged to the Jews. God, in his mercy, was always delivering them from their enemies over and over. <laughs> they were God's covenant people, and God is faithful to keep covenant. And so it is with us. God is faithful to his covenant with us. We don't have to do anything to get him to do something for us. He did something spectacular. He did it all. Rescue and deliverance belongs to us through Jesus Christ. Deliverance is primarily what has already happened to us when we were saved. God snatched us up and out of the kingdom of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his Son. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, it says this, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light 
who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. It doesn't say he's going to deliver us from the power of darkness. It says he already has delivered us from the power of darkness. In Christ, we already have been snatched up and out of the kingdom of darkness. And our spirit man lives in a brand new kingdom. And he says he has delivered us from the power. The power has the connotation of the concept of ability and strength. So he has snatched us up and out of the power and ability of darkness. It also contains the idea of authority the right to command. So he has snatched us up and out of the kingdom of darkness and Satan no longer has any right to command us to do anything or to speak into our lives. He has no right, no authority. And it also includes the idea of jurisdiction. It is a place of legal rule. You see, Satan only has rule in darkness. We don't live there anymore. <laughs> we don't live there anymore. Even when you sin, he doesn't have the right of jurisdiction. Because all of your sins are washed away. You are always spotless. The blood of Jesus is always cleansing you. So even when you mess up, he has no right in your life. None. But what he does is he comes along and he tells you, you're not godly. Look what you just did. Look what you just said. Look what you just thought. What does he do? He sows darkness into our mind. The only thing he can inhabit is darkness. The only way he can get anywhere near us is to throw darts at our heads. <laughs> we need to keep the helmet on. <laughs> so what this is saying is our Father, through Jesus, has taken away all of Satan's power, his ability, and his strength in our lives. He has taken away all of Satan's authority, which is the right to tell us what to do or think, and he's taken away Satan's jurisdiction in our life. He no longer has any legal right to any part of our life. Our Father has completely snatched us up and out of Satan's hand and out of his dominion. We have already been completely delivered from all the power of the wicked enemy Haman or Satan. Because our Father has already translated us, past tense, has already transferred us into the kingdom of his dearly loved Son. And in this kingdom, Jesus... Jesus himself is the only one who has legal access to us. He is the only one who has the right to command and rule over us and all that belongs to us. Our Father has moved us to a completely new address in a completely different realm. It's kind of like going from Earth to Mars. Satan doesn't have a spaceship. That'll get him that far either. <laughs> we are completely delivered and safe in Christ. And the truth is Satan wants no part of being in Christ. And our Father did this through the very next verse, verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, in whom we have redemption, through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. I love the word redemption. <laughs> Webster's 1828 dictionary, it says this about redemption. It is the repurchase of captured goods or prisoners. The act of procuring the deliverance of persons or things from the possession and power of captors by a payment of an equivalent. So much good stuff in there. <laughs> the truth is, Satan had captured humanity. He had taken humanity. He tricked humanity out of what belonged to him. 
So he got everything that belonged to humanity, which was this world, the system. And God says that we needed someone who was willing to pay what we were worth. He had to have someone who was willing to pay what we were worth to him. Payment of an equivalent. Our Father and our Jesus both decided that we were worth the price of redemption. That our lives are equivalent in value to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. They counted us worth all the suffering of the cross. They paid. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together paid the price of redemption to procure our deliverance. Our being snatched up and out from the possession and power of our captors, Satan and sin. So, deliverance has already arisen for believers. It's ours. But just like Esther, we have to decide whether or not we're going to participate in bringing forth the manifestation of our deliverance. Esther had the option of doing nothing. But doing nothing would have simply guaranteed her early demise. Sometimes that's the reality for us, too. Doing nothing simply hastens our early demise. We need to participate in bringing forth what belongs to us. The more you spend time with Jesus, the more he can lead you, guide you, and direct you. He doesn't say, sit on your butt and do nothing. (laughs) You have to resist your enemy, or your enemy is going to take hold of you. Mordecai in the story then reminds Esther of who she is. Her identity as queen of Persia and her royal status that was given to her as a gift. It wasn't by inheritance. It was a gift. He suggests that surely now is the time to take advantage of her royal prerogatives. And the same is true of us. We have royal prerogatives. When we face problems, either those of our own making or the making of others, we first need to remind ourselves of who we are. Just so happens, we're the queen, (laughs) the bride of Christ. He is the king and our husband, and he bids us to rule and reign with him. He bids us to make the most of our royal prerogatives for whatever such a time as this that we are facing. Do you have a such a time as of this kind of problem? If so, it's time for us to remember who we are, to whom we are married, and with whom we have favor. After Mordecai reminds Esther of who she is and the position that she holds, she decides to seek the Lord with prayer and fasting. Again, we don't fast like Esther. (laughs) She was seeking to get God to move on her behalf. But in Christ, our Father has already completely moved on our behalf. But perhaps what she received when she was fasting was wisdom. How did she know to have two banquets instead of one? How did she know the best way to approach the king? Perhaps the Lord revealed these things to her. Or perhaps she just gained the strength and courage she needed to do what she knew needed to be done at such a time as this. Whatever Esther received during her fast, it was exactly what she needed to participate 
in bringing forth deliverance both for herself and for her people. God obviously intervened by providing some much-needed so-called happenstances. <laughs> in the midst of all of those, it just so happened, the truth of Haman's evil heart and plan was exposed. And then the king's heart delighted to grant favor to both Esther and Mordecai. Then they had the legal right to empower the Jewish people to fight for and keep what already belonged to them. Deliverance was now available. Deliverance had arisen. And all the Jewish people had to do was rise up in their authority, stand up against their enemies, and plunder them with the aid and the approval of the king's army. They had to fight to keep what belongs to them. And the truth is, sometimes we do too. Sometimes we need to fight with prayer and fasting. Sometimes we need to give more time to the Word, not because it earns us anything, but so that we hear, so that we get the wisdom, so that we get the strategies, so that we can do exactly what they did, rise up and resist our enemy and keep what belongs to us in Christ Jesus. The enemy of our soul is always seeking whom he may devour. He's always trying to convince us that he's not really completely defeated. <laughs> he's always trying to convince us that life is too hard, the challenges are too much, and victory in hand is just too far away. But the truth is, the evil Haman was hung on a gallows, and his evil plot was completely destroyed. And even so for us, sin and death hung on a cross and was completely and forever defeated. Christ has completely won the victory. He has completely delivered us from all the power of the enemy, and Satan's evil plot has been completely destroyed. We now can rise and fight the good fight of faith. That's our fight. To stand and say, no, my God says, my God has already moved, the kingdom is here, and I get to be in it and rule and reign with Christ. For such a time as this, <laughs> we can seek the face of our Father and receive by faith all that he has for us. Because you see, we too have the aid and approval of the king and his heart delights in granting us favor after the jews apprehended their deliverance that's when mordecai instituted the great feast and a crazy celebration to help the people remember their miraculous deliverance and victory even so we celebrate our deliverance from all the power of the evil one we celebrate our position as christ's beloved bride and as our father's dearly loved child. We get to celebrate with an unequaled feast of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We get to celebrate the love that bought our redemption, that bought our deliverance and our freedom, not just once a year, but as often as we want. We get to celebrate not just God's unseen hand, but we get to celebrate God come in flesh and blood, not just the God whose name was left unspoken, but the God whose name is above every name. We get to celebrate not just a temporal deliverance, but an eternal deliverance. We get to celebrate Jesus. In Jesus, we have biblical deliverance. In Jesus, we have royal status. And in Jesus, we have the power and the authority to stand in faith 
and keep what belongs to us. Jesus is our very great deliverance. And this morning, we are going to celebrate our Jesus and our very great deliverance. We are going to feast on the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and declare complete victory over all the power of the enemy. Amen? On the night before he died, the Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. He said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. Take and drink in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your covenant love, unfailing love, impractical love, crazy love. You so love us that you sent your only son to be our great deliverer. You knew there was no way for us to work our way out of captivity. There was no way for us to escape the power of sin and Satan. And your great love wouldn't let you do nothing. You gave your all. You gave your life. You showed us the greatest act of love ever given. You laid down your life for us. We thank you. We thank you for carrying our sin, our sickness, our disease, our poverty, our lack, and, and the curse itself into death, where it can never again touch us. You have raised Jesus and us into a brand new kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of your love. And we declare, Father God, that we live and abide in the light and in the kingdom of your love. We declare the victory that Jesus has won for us. And we declare Jesus. Jesus is the reason for the Easter season. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.